Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm your host, John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the centers, Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, global economic interconnectedness has drastically lowered costs for goods for consumers and has expanded employment opportunities around the world. However, the COVID-19 pandemic and resulting supply chain disruptions have called into question the reliability of long-distance shipping, transportation, and outsourcing. Long shipping times or production shutdowns of key materials such as face masks or medicines have shown the downside of outsourcing manufacturing overseas. As a result, many countries and manufacturers are looking to pull back their investment in faraway regions and invest closer to home. Closer proximity, existing trade ties, and the potential of lower production and labor costs all make Latin America potentially an attractive solution to the problem. However, Latin America faces a sluggish post-COVID recovery with high inflation across the hemisphere. Additionally, low public spending means that infrastructure and important public services for production may not match that of competitors in other regions. Political uncertainty, both from the United States and Latin American governments, further threatens the region's viability. Today, we'll explore the nearshoring potential of the Americas and what the benefits and obstacles may be. There's lots to discuss, so let's bring in the roundtable. Please say hello to Wilson Center Distinguished Fellow, Cindy Arnson. Hi, John. Hey, Cindy. Mexico Institute Director, Andrew Rudman. Hi, John. Andrew, welcome back. Uh, and acting Latin American director and director of the Argentina Project, Benjamin Gadan. Hey, Benjamin. Greetings, John. And a special America's 360 welcome to our newest teammate, Bruna Santos. Bruna is senior advisor to the Brazil Institute. Great to have you. Welcome aboard, Bruna. Hello. Thank you, John. So uh, to begin, I thought before we dig into some of the details, I thought it would be good to go around the horn and hear from each of you on the general question of Good idea, bad idea, necessary, uh, your thoughts on the potential. Uh, without going you know, into too much detail, just give us your overview thoughts on this question of uh, a reaction to the pandemic and, and nearshoring and, and what, the op- uh, what the, both the benefits and the obstacles might be. Benjamin, let's begin with you. Good idea or bad idea, John, it's happening and will continue to happen. Companies around the world are reconsidering where they depend upon for their supply chains. They were shocked by the disruptions of the pandemic. They were surprised by the speed of sanctions on Russia and the need to adapt virtually overnight in both cases. And now they're trying to find places that are closer to their markets, places that are more democratic, more respectful of of their values, such as democracy, uh, human rights, the environment, more dependable, require less energy for transportation. For all of those reasons, the trend is real, and it's a potentially huge benefit for Latin America. The train has left the station, Cindy. What do you think? I, I would agree with Benjamin. It is happening. It's not happening nearly as fast as I think many Latin American countries, Central America, Caribbean countries that are really close to the United States um, would like. It's been in place for many decades because of economic 
free trade agreements um, with Mexico and, and Canada in terms of the integration of these supply chains. And the real um, tension that I feel exists in this um, is a desire among Latin American countries and Caribbean countries to attract nearshoring investment and the reluctance of the Biden administration to, uh, especially President Biden himself, um, to talk about nearshoring when he would rather reshore jobs to the United States. So I think there's a, you know, a fairly important tension here, but there are some examples of where you really can have it both ways. You can have a win-win. Intel, uh, which had a large investment in chip manufacturing in Costa Rica, had sent a lot of that um, over to Asia from about to 2015 on. It's now reinvesting and greatly expanding its investment in Costa Rica for the manufacturing of chips. But there's a plant in Ohio and a large investment from Intel in Ohio to provide some of the um, inputs for those chips. So there is a way that you can make it work for the United States and for the countries that are really um, closest to the periphery of the United States. Thanks, Cindy. Andrew Rudman, your thoughts? John, well, I, I agree with Benjamin and, and Cindy. I, I guess I would just make the point that, you know, Cindy's right. I mean, people have been talking about nearshoring or, or reshoring for a long time. And I, I think it, it certainly is before the pandemic because it was already happening in response to the Trump administration's China policy, which the Biden administration really has has not changed. I mean, I, I think there's a, a true move or has been a move to discourage investment in China and move production back uh, to to North America. I, I think, as Cindy noted, the Biden administration has been um, has talked a lot about North America and enhancing the economic relationships between the three countries. Um, but the Build Back Better legislation, which which ultimately didn't pass, included tax credits only for EVs produced solely in the United States. Importantly, the um, Inflation Reduction Act, which was adopted by Congress, actually calls out production for EVs and batteries in North America. So that is, um, I think, an important indication on the on the part of the Congress, if not the administration. Uh, that North America is a is a construction platform and that we do need to think regionally. Thanks. Bruna, I don't know if I uh, gave you uh, a gift or a disadvantage by going last, but I was purposely letting you hear what the, the veteran members of the panel had to say before you took your turn. And I apologize if, it, if they've said so much that I've left you with little to talk about. Oh, no, not at all. I agree with all of them. And in terms of Brazil, it's an opportunity. I think all the factors that are related to the emergence of building a more resilient, uh, more resilient supply chain should be looked at carefully by whoever wins Brazil's elections. These issues are critical to create a more reliable, more reliable supply chains and also to make progress uh, toward climate goals in the country. Uh, as opportunities for Brazil are opening, the country is among the, lar- the 10 largest oil and gas producers globally and is a, gl- a major producer and exporter of soybeans, coffee, sugar, meat. And Brazil is uh, particularly very well positioned to be a major renewable um, a- actor, given that uh, we have abundance of natural resources. Brazil has a very large share of renewables in its energy matrix. It's roughly uh, 45%. 
And um, regarding the electricity matrix, the country's capacity to generate renewable energy corresponds to more than 80%. So it's all vital um, for Brazil to position itself uh, as a major player in terms of uh, producing energy and also other critical elements like investing in lithium production, investing in other mineral wealth production. I think that all those attributes give the country significant um, competitive advantages in attracting investments. It depends on whether, on whether or not uh, the next government will create the correct environment to attract investments and also to position the country geopolitically in a way that we can see this as a great opportunity for the country. Well, it, along the lines of the last thing you just said, Bruna, do you anticipate that there's a a massive change in the calculus depending on how the runoff goes? If Lula holds the lead uh, from the preliminary round of voting or if there's some surprise from Bolsonaro or a challenge to the results, does that change the calculus as far as Brazil's ability to move quickly to exploit this potential? I, yeah, I think it does. But uh, it's worth saying that the investment climate emerged from expectations from the these groups, and they are not homogeneous at all. I think it definitely follows institutional stability and profitability. So after the results on, mon- on Sunday, uh, when we saw the two candidates go into second round, we saw also that the configuration of Senate and Congress will force uh whoever wins the presidency to negotiate, to form alliances in order to pass anything in Congress. So if Lula wins, he won't be able to do any radical move, such as suspend a labor reform, which is really important, an element that is really important for investors. So if Lula coordinates a a wide coalition with his former opposition to be able to govern with stability, this is close to be what investors could call a best case scenario after this election. And we're saying also that um, themes related to the environment, deforestation especially, and uh, environmental concerns were, are things that are holding back um, the were holding back Brazil from reaching a trade agreement with the European Union. And that's something that uh, Lula has said that he would expect to reach a trade agreement if elected in less than six months. The same happens with OECD. OECD demands Brazil to to meet the Paris Agreement um, in order to join the OECD. So there are a number of uh, elements ahead of us. They are not only necessarily economic or environmental, they are geopolitical as well. So this should be, um, from an economic point of view, uh, an important topic for the next president. Thanks. Andrew, your thoughts on, on the commentary from Bruna about the right conditions, the so-called right conditions? Well, I, I thought that was a, a really good point that, that Bruna made and one that applies surely not only to Brazil and, and does in, indeed apply to Mexico, because we always talk about the fact that, you know, there's this there's more interest in near shoring. There's this great opportunity. But I think it, it's so important that the countries that want to attract near shoring implement the right policies. And that means everything from ensuring reliable and inexpensive energy to investing in the infrastructure to move goods from the factory to the port. And it also means ensuring that that companies can meet their 
ESG uh, commitments in, in terms of things like emissions reductions and good governance and transparency. So it, it's not um, it's not just a question of, hey, it's cheaper to produce in Latin America than China, so everybody come on aboard. Um, countries still are competing with each other and with other regions. And, and I think really, as, as Brenda said, have to make sure that the conditions are right so that uh, CEOs in boardrooms, wherever they are, see that country as a positive investment de destination and not as some sort of a risk. Uh, Benjamin, about that competition angle, the, uh, Cindy made the point that you know domestic politics in the U.S. and, and other countries would indicate that uh, reshoring might be the more popular option than nearshoring. Uh, what is the role of the U.S. in promoting uh you know, nearshoring, or as another term you introduced into the cons into the uh, chat, is friendshoring. Tell us what that is, or tell our listeners what that is. Sure. No, I, I was glad that Cindy brought up the sometimes reluctant posture toward nearshoring or friendshoring because domestic politics in the U.S. matter a lot. I think Andrew Bruna, they're correct. There's a lot that can be done on the policy level in Latin America, but in many places in the Caribbean and Central America, they simply don't have the resources to provide the infrastructure necessary. So as much as it'd be nice to tell them, look, you need to provide ample renewable energy, good transportation, security, they're not going to be able to do it on their own. And so if the United States, in fact, sees a benefit to the United States of secure, reliable supply chains in the Western Hemisphere, the United States then needs to make that happen by providing investments in these countries so that they can be a better platform. You know, friendshoring just basically means that geography is not the primary motivation for moving these supply chains. It means that these are countries not likely to be sanctioned like Russia. These are countries that are democratic, respectful of the environment. Companies can move there and not fear their reputation will be damaged by some sort of scandal related to labor rights abuses, environmental abuses, et cetera. Yeah. Cindy, your thoughts? Sure. A really prime example of what Benjamin's talking about is the Alliance for Development and Democracy, which is a coalition of Costa Rica, Panama, and the Dominican Republic, um, all of which are, are democracies. Um, no one is without challenges these days, but they are Three, all three countries very uh, friendly to the United States and are trying to promote themselves as uh, destinations for nearshoring investments. And they have gotten the attention of the Biden administration. There was a memorandum of understanding that was signed with the State Department uh, last July. Um, kind of a uh, a small step in the in the sense that they agreed through this memorandum of understanding to share information um, about uh, you know various possibilities for nearshoring investment, but it it goes to the heart of what I think the Biden administration has made a central um, aspect of its policy in the hemisphere, which is that if you are going to consolidate to shore up democracy um, at a time when when uh, it's being whiplashed by a lot of uh, global tendencies, you have to show that democratic govern governments can deliver for their people. And um, I think that that is a, a key goal of the three countries that are part of the Alliance for, Demo for um, Development in Democracy is precisely with these commitments to democratic governance uh, that they can actually deliver. And they are hopeful that they will attract more investment. Um, and the private sector is looking at this, but it does seem 
to me a bit slow. Um, the number of concrete commitments that have made been made since the the June Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles is not uh, a very long list. And I think that, you know, we should uh, be thinking about pushing the U.S. government to do more, to actually promote um, this uh, bringing back of, of supply chains closer to the United States, not just for geographical proximity, as Benjamin was saying, but also, um, you know, to bring it to our friends. But we should be honest. Chile is very far away. Argentina is very far away. Brazil is very far away. Um, the countries that stand the most to benefit from this are the countries that really are uh, geographically close um, to the U.S. southern border and, by extension, to Canada's uh, border with the United States. Building on uh, Cindy's observation about the alliance and then also about the countries that are far away. And we've already talked about in previous episodes, Chile, Argentina, Mexico, all major sources of lithium. So I'm wondering, thinking in both terms of nations and then areas of industry or resources that have the most potential uh, to begin this process in a meaningful way, what do you look at? Are there particular products, industries where the potential is high? Are there particular countries that are best positioned to take advantage of those opportunities? I know you've mentioned some of them, but can we build on that? I mean, I think you, you've mentioned lithium, John, and, and I appreciate that because I think that does bring us further south of the border. Um, you know, I, I disagree in part. I, don't, I think, yes, the opportunities are more obvious in the Caribbean and Central America, and certainly in Mexico. There's greater integration with trade agreements, and there's greater gains in terms of efficiency and reducing transportation costs and the environmental impacts of transporting goods. But no, I think critical minerals like lithium, like copper, that are absolutely essential for the energy transition in the United States that are in relatively short supply, higher prices, there are reliable supplies of these minerals in places like Argentina and Chile. And despite the distance, it makes all the sense in the world for the U.S. to be trying to make sure that all of those minerals don't end up in China, but, but create opportunities in the United States for the manufacturers of batteries, electric vehicles and other green technologies. Other thoughts? Well, John, let me, I, I think what Benjamin said is, is, is of course, uh, as always, correct. Um, but I, I think it's important to sound like he, he was alluding to the fact that it's true. The mineral there are clear, there are um, critical minerals in this hemisphere, but the processing is still primarily in China. And so I think that's the point that maybe um, Benjamin was getting at, and that some of the work of the critical minerals group at the Wilson Center has tried to look at is okay if you get them out of the ground, how do you process them in this hemisphere? Because if you're shipping them to China, then you're not really breaking that dependence on on a single market. So I think that's an important point to keep in mind. Runa, Cindy, any thoughts on on adding to this list of either products or industries or countries that are best positioned? Well, I think there's been a fair amount of progress um, in terms of Central America. The vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, Harris, has been in charge of mobilizing large U.S. companies to make investments that would provide jobs and opportunities um, in Central America. And you have some of the largest Fortune 500 companies that have really pledged to join with the Biden administration in addressing so-called root causes uh, of migration. Um, the, the part that uh, 
that I think is the challenge for both the proponents of nearshoring um, in the academic world, in the private sector, um, and in in uh, in the U.S. government, in Latin America, Central America, is um, to not have it uh, reinforce certain tendencies. For example, to have textile manufacturing, um, the maquila industries that have been on uh, in Central America, have had special trade zones, have been in, in Mexico as well, and not to just sort of build out huge maquilas, but look at the ways that the economy in the 21st century um, can provide high quality jobs uh, that rely on technology and training and all this kind of stuff um, in uh, in the U.S. near abroad. And that is a huge challenge. Any other thoughts on this? We, we can move on to another topic because you've raised a couple. and. One is uh, China, the China factor, right? How does China factor into this discussion and how does U.S.-Chinese competition factor into the discussion in the region? Yeah, I can comment on that. And I think that it, this is um, some a place where Brazil's diplomatic neutrality is an advantage. Um, as Cindy said, I think uh, the proximity refers not only to the physical location, but also ideological alignment and practices including, of course, companies' sustainability, uh, sustainability practices. So this is not uh, for Brazil an environmental agenda, but one that is entirely connected to uh, current geopolitics. And I do believe that, well, China is the major uh, trade partner of Brazil, and it's a significant soy importer. At the same time, Europe is a significant, is the, our biggest market for soy meal. So if we, we, we do not win if we opt out of the Chinese geopolitical club or if we opt out of the American geopolitical club. So from an economic point of view, for Brazil, there's no silver bullet regarding alignment to one pole, pole or the other. The other. So there is an asset there that is practically ours alone, which is how can we lever our green power and actually build more bridges in a multilateral level, joining OECD, finalizing the trade agreement with the, the European Union and moving forward in a more constructive dialogue, which is definitely different than what, what we are seeing now in terms of foreign, foreign policy for the country. Benjamin. Yeah, I actually think the same thing is true for the United States. Obviously, the United States has a much more aggressive posture right now toward China than does Brazil or, frankly, most of the countries in Latin America. But what I think is important is that there are benefits to the United States of increasing nearshoring and friendshoring, and they don't require a complete divorce between the United States and China. I mean, there is this scenario where China takes an action like invading Taiwan, for example, ends up being isolated like Russia is today. And then there's a real urgency for the total move of U.S. supply chains away from China. But even short of something catastrophic like that, there are lots of benefits to the United States to moving at least some of this business outside China, reducing the dependency on that one market for the manufacture of so many critical uh, goods. Cindy, I want to circle back to something you talked about earlier, which is sort of the the snail's pace that the U.S. has moved at, even though we've seen high-level trips to the region, including the most recent by Secretary Blinken. Uh, any insight into why? Is this one of those can't walk and chew gum at the same time because you've got Ukraine and all these other pressing issues? Why haven't we seen uh, uh, more urgency? 
Well, I think the domestic U.S. politics have a lot to do with that. And um, the political considerations in the White House are not necessarily the same considerations that the State Department would have or even the Treasury or, or the Commerce Department. Um, and, and there is this fundamental disconnect about where it is you want to promote investment and where it is you want to create jobs. Um, I think it's not a, a, a binary, it's not an either or, um, and that much more needs to be done to um, de-risk the kinds of investments that could be made by the private sector through the multilateral development banks, through the Development Finance Corporation. Um, but I'd like to go back to something I, I believe it was Andrew who mentioned, which is that the countries themselves um, have to have some of the basics in place um, in terms of rule of law, in terms of transparency, in terms of anti-corruption, not that they have a very sophisticated uh, transportation infrastructure or something um, uh, already in place, but that the key issues of governance um, are, are there so that it makes sense for a private U.S. company. And that's after all, what we're talking about is, you know, U.S. firms taking investments that were in Asia or, you know, in, in China specifically and bringing them back closer to, to U.S. borders. But that's only going to happen if the private sector feels that there are the conditions on the ground to uh, make that attractive. It's not just cutting costs in transportation. It's really having uh, a viable business environment. Time for a final thought from Andrew Rudman. Thanks, John. Well, let's maybe just circle back to where you started. Is nearshoring a, a good thing or a bad thing? And and I think one of the lessons uh, from the pandemic really is that you can't be dependent on a single supplier or a single country or a single supply chain. So even setting aside the geopolitics, nearshoring and, and diversification of supply chains is going to ensure that when there's another pandemic, we're better prepared to respond. Great. Well, well, thanks to all of you, uh, Cindy, Bruna, Andrew, Benjamin. We learned a lot today. Uh, you know what I learned? I also learned that Andrew says that Benjamin is always correct. So make a jump <laughs> for our regular listeners. Make a jump. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks again to all of you. Uh, I should tell our listeners this episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fascinella, and Zoe Reed, with the assistance of Joseph Bouchard, Thomas Michael, Gatano Feliste Sebelen, and Sophia Schachner. As always, thank you to all of you working behind the scenes to make us look good uh, on the microphone. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion and that you'll join us again soon for our next episode, which will focus on the Brazilian election, the runoff. Until then, for America's 360 and the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for your time and interest. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.